Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. We've been talking about Israel and Gaza a lot on this show. Uh, we need to break from it. I'm very, very excited to do this specific episode. Um, can you tell the lovely people who you are uh, and what you do? Yeah, my name is uh, Matt Farwell, and I'm a writer currently working on a project called The Hunt for Tom Clancy, which was a failed book proposal detailing how both the CIA and the military put a considerable amount of effort into cultivating novelist Tom Clancy as a propaganda asset and tool for all sorts of things, actually. Um, and I thought it would sell. My agent thought it would sell. All the other writers I do thought it would sell. I needed a book to pay my taxes, you know, like <laughs> shit, very relatable shit. Um, and didn't get it. But what I got instead was something almost better. So, um, most of the original like Hunt for Tom Clancy book proposal has already come out in form drafts. And I went through and did, I don't know, when you describe them as like dispatches riffing on like various Tom Clancy books or like using them as a springboard to talk about the real world shit that inspired it. It's memoir slash uh, Clancy analysis slash pop culture and history analysis kind of all woven together. Um, but you use like the specific Tom Clancy book, and this is a Substack, by the way. We should say uh, that you can pay for and read right now. Yeah, the Hunter Tom Clancy. Uh, uh, so yeah, like each, I would say dispatch is a good word. You use the uh, you use the specific books to kind of then talk about Clancy, and also weave some personal memoir stuff in there, and talk about his career, not just as an author, but as everything else. Uh, and like, in, it's fascinating to me that this book proposal didn't go anywhere. Cause it's like such a slam dunk and there's Tom Clancy's name is on it's ubiquitous. He's, he's a Stephen King figure in my, I mean, no, that, that's how it started out was I was joking uh, with a person that was close to me at the time that like Tom Clancy's name sold to uh, a, a Quebecois um, software company for like $45 million. But if I put it in a title, that's fair use. Um, and like that, that, the whole thing did, it started as like kind of a like, oh man, this is a like, this is actually kind of a good idea. Uh, Cause he's ubiquitous. Right. And like, if your, your dad probably knows him from like the novels and the movies and like, People our age and younger know him from the video games. Um, but I mean, I don't know, like, why is the office guy playing Jack Ryan? You know, and why is this particular mythology like so important to 
the American like late Cold War and early I don't know, end of history. Yeah, it's uh, funny because the as you point out, uh, Hunfer is it Hunfer Red, Red Storm Rising is the first one. Red Storm Rising is published by the U.S. Naval. Which one? Well, October was the first. Okay, uh, is published by the Naval U.S. Naval Institute, right? It's like not even Naval Institute Press, operating like basically out of a suite of offices on the second floor of like a colonial building in Annapolis, and they acquired it for I think like a five thousand dollar advance and printed up five thousand copies, some of which found their way into the hands of. Uh, Reagan's ambassador to Argentina, who then hand carried it back to Reagan, gave it to him as a Christmas gift. And he spent like two days reading this book and all of his advisors who had kind of had trouble getting through to Reagan because he's a weirdo. Um, you know, I mean, his wife is paying an astrologer $5,000. That's the other thing about this is just pointing out how like I'm dressed in a like I got a coat and tie on right now, but like all this shit's absurd. And um, we dress it up as if it's not absurd. But so you've got Reagan, who uh, is being influenced by his wife, who's paying an astrologer five thousand dollars to like review his travel schedule and tell the chief of staff has to be like, no, he won't sit through briefings. He's like old and kind of you know just like wants to do his thing. But he spends two days reading a Tom Clancy book like intently. And so if you're somebody like Bill Casey who's interested in how you capture someone's attention and how you hold it and how you can exercise covert influence over somebody. All of a sudden, Tom Clancy becomes like incredibly interesting. And you might just send your hatchet man, Bob Gates, out to get Tom Clancy. Can we back up just a little bit? And can you give me the the bio of Clancy uh, up until he writes this book? He was 37 when it's published, right? Uh, yes, he was 37 when it was published. Um, he was working, like he had a, he had an insurance storefront that he had purchased from his mother-in-law. So he basically was running his wife's family business, trying to pay it off at, uh, he'd bought it in the seventies. So there's similar today, high interest rates. Um, and he had gone to Loyola college in Baltimore Jesuit school where Academically, he was all right. Um, he claimed that he had tried to be an army ROTC, but his eyesight was too bad, which I don't know, man. I'm, I have like really bad eyesight and I was in the army. I met some people with really bad eyesight. Um, not sure that holds water, but, um, he was in college at a very strange time and in Baltimore, which at the time had a base called Fort Holabird that was still active which was where, and people don't, when people get paranoid about stuff, they tend to get paranoid about like say CIA, FBI, you know? Okay. Fair enough. But the army is the oldest security service in the United States. And it's been doing internal security forever and will continue. So at the time, this was all being run out of Fort Oliver in Baltimore. Just to give you some context for the times, Tom Clancy graduated in like 68, 69, height of Vietnam War, height of anti-war protests. Um, at the same time, the leader of the Students for the Democratic Society at CU Boulder is an army captain undercover running SDS. Like, you know, 
He then turns it over to his handpicked replacement, who's an undercover army sergeant, also enrolled as a student, who gets arrested when he throws a chair at a Japanese-American university president who comes to speak, presumably being anti-war. He's the only one that gets bailed out. The rest of the SDS guys stay in jail. The army guy gets bailed out. Um, It was estimated that any anti-war gathering or subversive gathering that had over 20 people, there was an army agent there. Not necessarily somebody in the army, but somebody reporting to the army. Uh, you have Department of Energy running stuff at the same time. They have a huge broad purview. You should also be paranoid about the Department of Energy. They have a huge uh, counterintelligence apparatus that has a super wide purview because they're in charge of nuclear security. Yeah, the... I would love someday, this is a tangent to do like in my own reporting, just a a deep dive into DOE, like intelligence services, you know, Uh, especially now. Well, and they're they're paramilitary services too, because like the guys that guard the labs, I've talked to some of them and they shoot more rounds than my line infantry platoon shot. And we shot a lot like in training, but they're like a football team that never goes to war. They recruit from the branches, right? It's like they'll pull from Marines and Army and everyone. They do that. And they also, uh, I mean, DOE Labs, Oak Ridge, Tennessee, Hanford Site, Washington, Idaho National Lab, uh, uh, Jefferson Lab, um, the like lab down by, uh, what is it called? Uh, the Nevada National Security Site, where they did all the nuke testing. A lot of those guys, too, were recruited from the local area. They're farm boys who have like, and if you can be a farm boy where you have a $90,000 a year job where you just shoot guns all day and run around in the desert, especially in some of the communities where they build these things, right? Because it tends to be far away from everybody and everything. And that tends to feed into the secrecy of it, right? Like we also have this conception that it's hard to keep, or that like we can't keep secrets in America. The American government is bad at keeping secrets. Well, the Manhattan Project seems to me proof that, like, they're not actually, they're pretty damn good at it. And when you think about the, like, multiplicity of efforts that were going into the Manhattan Project, the atomic bomb, you can't hide that. It's pretty visible. You blow it up, someone knows something's blown up. But what else were they working on at that time that they could hide? Because I think, I mean, when you start to really get into it, the Atomic Energy like, Act of, I think, 47, go around the same time uh, CIA is created, Air Force is created, et cetera, et cetera. That uh, introduced a whole level of like, like classification and stuff where the government can really interview. Um, so that's when FBI background checks on high-level people in the government start to come up. Um, it's a really like watershed moment that we don't much talk about. There's a great book from uh, Alex Wellerstein that is all about this, that is just about the birth of the, the secrecy apparatus uh, that comes out of the nuke stuff. Uh, I suggest everyone read it. I can't remember the name of it off the top of my head. Uh, but I remember it's written by. I can't. Either. I, I, he's great. He's a smart dude, though. He's uh, no, not in person. He's excellent. He's 
one of the reasons I love him so much is he's one of these guys that um, he can communicate the topic very clearly uh, to you in person. And there's like so many, especially in the nuclear field, there's so many people that are, I love them, but they start talking and your brain shuts down. No, because they're, they're so on the, it's, it's like when my dad starts talking about car engines and I'm like, okay, like, you know, I just like, I power down and I under, I know what you're talking about. Uh, but back to Clancy. So Clancy graduates. So Clancy graduates. He's kind of a, like, he's just an insurance dude, but he's an insurance dude in a part of Maryland where his clients include retired nuclear submariners. His best friend was a helicopter pilot in Vietnam. Um, and he hangs out like he goes to the Naval Institute to get clients because he's a pretty savvy businessman and he's a good, good talker. I mean, if you listen to any of his early speeches, um, he gives one in, like to the National Security Agency in 1968 or 1986, like two years after Hump Red October comes out. Where, I mean, this guy was selling insurance three years ago, and now he's got all like nation's top eavesdroppers just like intently listening to him and laughing. I mean, they're eating out of the palm of his hand. Uh, it's it's a really um, interesting leap for me. And it was an interesting leap for me at that time, too, because like the same age, right? And I've had a book come out, but like sold for shit, uh, you know? And like clearly having another one coming out. Uh, is going to take more effort than I thought it would. So, um, you know, at the time there was a little bit of like me kind of doing a little Roger or Walter Mitty through Tom Clancy. Right. Cause like, I mean, he was kind of living the dream as a writer. Yeah. The Walter Mitty aspect of it, I think is really, uh, fascinating. So it's always struck me that, uh, Jack Ryan is a little bit like a dream version of uh of Tom Clancy that he gets to control and gets to be president and gets to have all these adventures. Their backgrounds are very similar. But also so it, and Clancy has talked about this like how Ryan is a kind of an amalgamation of himself mapped onto like the career of Bob Gates. Um but he also talks about how John Clark who's another major character in the Clancy verse uh, retired or ex Navy SEAL who goes like freelance for a little while in the killing business and then gets recruited by CIA. Um, he, uh, he's Clancy's dark side. And like when li- I listened to all of the like interviews this guy did, and um, so many of my friends when they'd like come over while he's on, they're like, What in the hell are you doing? How can you stand like listening to this guy talk? Um, and I'm like, Because it's like listening to all of like my parents' friends growing up, like I was a, I was a military rat growing up. So I grew up around all these people and I joined them for a little while. Um, and so there's something kind of like comforting and weird to it. But like, also, I mean, he's like, he's kind of a snide, like pompous son of a bitch, you know, like, right. I mean, especially as he kind of like, once he's inviting Colin Powell over to like shooting his underground shooting range, kind of knows he's untouchable. Yeah, once Tom Clancy, the brand, takes over, right? Um, yeah. Why do you think – I mean, obviously, Reagan loved that that first book. What was it about it that, like, hit, that made the the DC intelligentsia kind of pay attention to him and start – make this book a bestseller? 
Well, okay. So we have to go back in our heads a little bit. And luckily, we're in sort of a parallel time right now, right? Like this was a little, this would have been more difficult to explain or understand in 2012 or 2008, even when the propaganda for like the military and security services had, was kind of at its height and everyone was sort of like on board. Um, but now we're, we're at a similar time where, you know, the army's missing recruiting goals. People don't want to go in. Um, you know, like there, you got Republicans in the Senate that are just like screwing with the military hard, which you wouldn't expect. Um, just everything's kind of topsy turvy. It was similar post Vietnam. We're in a similar like state, right? Afghanistan went out of there with our tail between our legs and just never talked about it. Um, you know, which is good because that's the war I fought in. So um, the Taliban are rollerblading now. They're real innovators. Uh, they uh, they really figured out propaganda aimed at the West, uh, didn't they? They're so good. Um, it's like it's been wild. I mean, it's wild to me too. To like some of my vet friends, like. We sprinkle it in like jihadi language just to our like talking. Like it's a, it's, yeah, it's a weird cultural exchange. Um, so 1984, military power is like, ju- they're just starting to get over losing Vietnam, right? You're starting to see films like Rambo, 1982, or First Blood, a proper title, which is a great movie that you should all watch immediately if you haven't. Um, you're getting like Chuck Norris, uh, movies coming out kind of reckoning with Vietnam. And you also want to build up like the military and also the draft is gone. So you really have to sell this shit, right? Like in a way where you couldn't before. And that also creates a divergence between the general American public and people who serve, right? Like my family, we've been fighting, like we've been in the service for a long, long time. Uh, it's just kind of something you do. Um, not everybody's like that. Most people don't have any connection. Like they're better off for it. Um, but the project of Tom Clancy was to remake the image and kind of make it stronger and more durable than it was even during like, like even during say the John Wayne Green Beret days in Vietnam, right? The early kind of, um, and it was easier to do that with the general public. Because so many more of them are divorced from the reality of the situation, right? Like in, in Korea, when you had, you know, half of people's uncles or like brothers who were going off to do something there, people would come back and be like, this was bullshit. But if the only people that come back and like say stuff are, hey, this is awesome. These people are cool and they're like protecting you, then you start to have, and that's the generation I was born into. I was born in, uh, during Operation Able Archer, um, and like, or around, around that time in 83. And, um, so it's really the start of kind of the rise of militancy in America that I think would probably, you say it hit its peak at like 2000, like June 2003, like we just not gotten to Baghdad, knocked it over. It hadn't yet gone like, South because it hadn't yet gone anywhere. Um, and then we're, we're on the other end of that. So, um, I'm kind of waiting and, and they've tried to do various like classification of conflict with any of the wars that have popped up since, uh, 
who were in Afghanistan. And I can say the less success, honestly. Yeah, why why do you think that is? Do you think it's just because there's not a great champion uh, or a great artist that is that is putting out the work like Clancy was, or is the American, or is the fact that we are most of the populace is so divorced? Is it like one percent serves right uh, that they have no context for it and aren't interested? I think that's it, and most and. I, okay, so I have this, I have kind of an interesting case study because I go to Lowe's a lot or like when I wasn't living in an apartment like I am now, I went to Lowe's all the time. You get, you get a discount if you're military. And I always had like kind of a smart ass response to like the thank you for your service that came up with that, right? Um, and I, I would get pushback on that probably from like 2010 up to about 2020, like pushback. And then I noticed it would be cashiers were like, you know, thank you for your service. And I'm like, listen, we were like gangsters. Um, you know, like, here's what we were doing. Here's the people we were supporting. And here's what happened to them like years after. Um, and I noticed that that started to shift where I, I had one clerk. It's like, yeah, my brother's in, says bullshit. And I'm like, Tell your brother I said hi, you know, like, and um, so I I think one, it's subject matter, right? Like, you can't, and we see that, we've seen that recently on social media with um, the Bin Laden letter, right? Which so fascinating me because, like, again, all those, uh, when I went out to the Bush Library in 2017, I like pulled up uh, some of the only stuff you could pull up is the Presidential Records Act. Uh, I wound up getting these like memes that they had made in the White House on like Photoshop and printed out and like paper moving around the White House, moving around in a very orderly way. It's logged as it's entered in certain places. Yada yada. You see who sees it, you see who's chopped off on it. Um, and that's like somebody's job to like make sure that that's like a whole people's jobs to make sure that happens. These were going around everywhere. And like everyone was loving them. Um, but they overextended, they outkicked their coverage. I mean, I'm, uh, I'm probably one of the more politically cynical of the like, I'm like, I'm like either team is good. Um, and I think yeah, both teams seem to like, like the wars, which I don't subject matter, right? Like it's hard to do, um, propagandist art on like what's essentially a disaster. Right. There's no real victory to like build up off of that. Um, two, I think there's a certain amount of weird, like cultural identification with the enemy that, or the enemy quote, that's going on now. Um, where you have a shift where like conservative Christians are starting to realize like, oh, we have a lot more in common with like conservative, like Sunni or Shia people than we do with like these Episcopalians, you know, like, and so, so it's, I don't know, man, it's just, a, it's, I think too, it's such a weird moment that no one has been able to like, and it's such a fractalized moment due to the internet, the lack of like TV as kind of the orchestra conductors, the fact that like, I can openly make fun of the New York Times and like a lot of people will agree with me, even though like they were the first people to publish me. And I kind of like the New York, like I've got friends who work there, you know, I like it, but you can like 
you can give these media outlets that were once kind of uncut. You can give Harvard shit, you know, like it's a time when a lot of the icons are getting pulled down. Um, and I don't think, I don't think there's, uh, the, there's the incentive certainly, but there's not yet the like moment where you can go capture that. To that kind of fractured, everyone has found their niche point. I think there is still some traction in uh, like operators as heroes. Um, and I would point to, you know, there was a, there was a Jack Ryan show on Amazon starring Jim from the office, as you said, yeah. uh, that, like my parents certainly love and watch. Um, also on Amazon, there is Reacher who I would say is right. kind of, is very much like an operator. It's a more of a detective story, but a good show. yeah. Uh, but, uh, so like, I think that stuff is still there, but I think mo- like the general public is kind of tuned out from it or at least maybe just the general public that's talking online actually. Well, I think there's like, there's a weird part of video games that comes into that too, where because you play Rainbow Six or Call of Duty, you now identify with these people. I went, uh, when I was in Arkansas, I went shotgun shooting with a friend of mine and a brother. And on the way back, like the brother was peppering me with questions about guns and like very specific shit about like, guns. And I know that, like, I know the tools I work with very and like you know I like going out and shooting skeet so like I know how to like shoot a shotgun but I'm not really like a super gun guy and this guy had like weird encyclopedic knowledge of like various like submachine guns it's because he played video games and like had internalized all that like uh without even thinking about it in a way where like he'd never really held a gun before we were like shooting shotguns yet his kind of like his internal uh, catalog was better than mine. The video game stuff I think is really, really interesting because uh, I'm pretty, I'm, I'm enmeshed in that world a little bit. Um, yeah. And I remember you, you mentioned in one of your pieces that uh, may have been one of the first, the first ones that like the division, Tom Clancy's the division, something that basically just kind of has his name on it essentially uh, is this giant franchise that made lots of money for the parent company Ubisoft. Um, I remember when that game came out, I interviewed a guy whose job it was at Ubisoft to keep the Tom Clancy lore. That was his whole job, was to be the person in charge of knowing like creating a shared universe for all of this Tom Clancy stuff, not just, not just his original works, but also all the Apocrypha. Yeah. Rainbow six, like all of that, you know, all of that stuff and the games Uh, and the division comes out of like that guy digesting all of that stuff and trying to turn it into a, like a, a a video game story. Um, So that was, well, and it's kind of a fucked up video game story. Like it's a fun video game. I played it. Lot. And it it also came out. Um, I mean, it came out pre-pandemic and pre-January six, and I argue kind of uh, had precognition of both. You know, I mean, it's hard to say like a video game is psychic, but like shit, that video game was pretty psychic. Yeah, that's the one. If I remember correctly, that one is the pandemic is that starts on paper money. Is that right? Right. 
Uh, right. The pandemic starts on paper money. Um, DC kind of falls. Like there's roving gangs of like pandemic survivors out for revenge and like rogue, like rogue operators. And your part, you inhabit the character of like a, a weird kind of like a gladio secret agent, right? Like no one knows you're a commando until you get that call and then you're you like you know drop your gym bag where you're like a personal trainer or you like get out of the ambulance where you're the emt and you go to a secret bunker and like give your gun and your orders um and often the order is to like go hunt down your fellow americans so it's a weird like it's a head trippy like first person shooter scenario and also one where like Obviously, the pandemic in January 6th didn't go that way. But you kind of see how, like, with a little more, you know, a little more fuel on that, like, it might have. Uh, my other big, th- and this is maybe breaking an NDA, but uh, we won't tell anybody. Uh, my other my other weird Clancy-verse Ubisoft interaction was uh, I got pinged, this is maybe five years ago or more from a, by a consulting firm uh, they were working on something for Ubisoft and they were trying to figure out how to make a video game uh, that could sell internationally and had enemies, but wouldn't make anybody upset. Uh, and it was going to be a Clancy verse set game. Um, and they were trying to, they basically they came to me and they were like, Hey, we want to know like what the next five, 10 years of war is going to look like. Uh, our big problem is that we want to be able to sell a game in China. We want to be able to sell a game uh, in all these different countries that are tradition, like that would traditionally be the enemy in a, in a Tom Clancy game, right? So like no Russian villains, no Chinese villains, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and like just had a long conversation with them about uh, who you would set up as the villain in a Clancy verse game in the 2020s without naming, without naming a country, right? The uh, it's the red Dawn reboot problem. I mean, but the division is like, that's a perfect answer to that. I mean, that's a, that's a great Satan even itself. Um, who doesn't want to buy that overseas, right? That's a good point. I hadn't thought about that. Like the, the fantasy of going through New York or DC as an operator fighting Americans might be pretty appealing. If, if you're from like Khartoum, I bet it'd be like, all right, angry planet listeners. We're going to pause there for a break. We'll be right back after this. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film. If only in theaters, May 17th, Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot maybe your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. 
United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. All right, Angry Planet listeners, let's get back to some Tom Clancy. Maybe just a little Marilyn. Let me pull us back into the the, clan, the main Clancy timeline, though. Um, yeah. He gets recruited by Robert Gates? Yeah, I go into this um, in, I think, one of the first essays. But, uh, so, full disclosure, I'm, a, I'm also a master's candidate right now at the University of Virginia, uh, studying English, partially based on, like, I had so much fun doing this over the last couple of years that I was like, let me get back in and get a little more like training and how to like do this better. Um, and it's been, it's been like really cool. Actually. I love it here. Um, I'm in a classroom right now. Uh, but the university of Virginia has a thing called the Miller center, which is kind of a semi-autonomous, like Saturn housed in the same mansion that William Faulkner lived in when he came here in 1957 for what I'm building a case for right now is the U.S. intelligence community's focus on using modernism as a way of like spreading American values throughout, like during the Cold War period. We'll put a pin in that. I want to get back to that. Actually, we'll we'll come back to Frank Wisner. I will talk about the Frank Wisner archives all fucking day. Um, but so the Miller Center does these oral history interviews with um, administration officials. After like new president comes in, all the old crew, you know, like the National Security Council's like secretary, uh, the like, you know, the deputy chief of staff, all these dudes come down and ladies, they all come down and uh, do interviews with historians at the Miller Center who were all presidential historians who worked on the presidential recordings project. So they listened to a bunch of Nixon, a bunch of Kennedy, a bunch of like that. And they compile like long oral history interviews that are then sealed for 20 years. And that encourages the like officials to be candid. You know, they know what's going to pop up isn't going to come out in the times like next week. Um, so I was an intern there when I was at college the first time. And part of my job was like Xeroxing, reading some of these. Um, <laughs> so I just plugged in Tom Clancy into like their search thing. Sure enough. Robert Gates's transcript from when he's leaving the Reagan administration has a whole section on Tom Clancy where he says it outright. Like I saw, um, you know, Hunt for Red October came out. I invited Clancy to like see my office. He, I'm doing this from memory. So he chided him for like, he's like, look, there's no Turkish coffee maker. Like you have with Admiral Greer, you know, the wood paneling is different, but like, you got everything else pretty much right. So um, you're pretty good at this. What do you think about working with us? And, you know, whether he had a, uh, what's the, it's the like CIA's equivalent of a 302. Like um, there, it's like a 20 something file. Uh, anyways, the like file you open up on like perspective uh by the way, I've never been in the intelligence community. I was a soldier, and like that's it. So all of my stuff is secondhand. But there's a file that you open up when that I'm recruiting. I don't know if he was an officially recruited agent or if it was more like the the wink, wink, nod, nod that they might have with like 
telecommunications executives um, or, you know, guys from Bain Consulting, whatever. Um, but he, he gets on the team and, and uh, Gates was very clear and very proud of how much he had gotten Clancy on the team because he was one of the guys in charge of restructuring the American public's consciousness on the military and security services. And so part of the way he did that was he embraced journalists. You know, he, uh, he says that in the Miller Center interviewed you, you know, they CIA cultivates friendly journalists. Um, and that's not like paranoia. That's just like reading the newspaper and seeing who gets the scoops. Um, and I mean, right. Like the, uh, and so it was all part of that same kind of strategy, which was basically to take people who do, they don't do good things. Like, you know, they may be doing it in like the service of good or whatever, but like it's kind of a shitty job where like they're dirt bags who are like backstabbing people all the time. Um, and I think it takes like a, a toll on your soul. So part of it too is you gotta keep the internal workforce motivated. And like this was a time too with like you know, Stanfield Turner like fired a ton of operations officers. Um, they weren't getting much money. They weren't getting much respect. Like, you know, they weren't even able to have much like fun. Um, so it was aimed not just at an external American public audience, but at an internal audience as like a, hey, look how great we are. And that's why coming in and lecturing to all those places was so important. Yeah, there was the there's the post Vietnam soul searching, and there was also uh, like a lot of high profile scandals and investigations. I think people have forgotten about now, like uh, stuff with contract, like Operation Ill Wind, and all these kinds of things. Right. My favorite is you know about Yellow Fruit, right? I don't think so. So Yellow Fruit was a army. Intelligence organization still exists, by the way. Um, there's a different name. And it's, it's basically like the OSS never ended after World War II. They just transferred to like the Army's G3. Um, and so Yellow Fruit was kind of the iteration of that in the 80s. And they were, um, these dudes, I mean, I talk about it because like they were like pirates, right? They were using taxpayer money to buy like fucking hot air balloons. The commander went to um, Vegas for like, or Salt Lake City for a training exercise in the year I was born. Um, and in Utah, I was born in Utah. And he spent like $16,000. That was what eventually got him like court-martialed. He filed an expense report for $60,000. But they had this whole other thing where like, there's another secret army organization called the ISA, which was like Delta Forces Advanced Recon Element. They're known as like Task Force Orange or the War on Terror. Um, but you had like ISA and Yellow Fruit like fighting each other and um, doing it in like weird ways. Like ISA, uh, they put on a di- like they were putting on a dining in at a hotel in like Crystal City. And so Yellow Fruit, Yellow Fruit's commander, who didn't like ISA's commander, decided he was going to uh, use a uh, a prostitute to like entrap the commander, get like photos and then report him as a security thing. The whole thing goes like black. Um, and eventually these guys kind of, the top gets like removed and they restructure the thing, including with like some people I wound up interviewing for my book and for some of the stuff that informs this. 
Um, but so you have these unpredictable, like uh, people tend to assume too that it's a monolith within like the U.S. government or organizations. But they're always fighting each other, and they're always fighting other bureaucracies, right? Like the Navy's main enemy isn't like the Russian Navy; it's the Air Force. Is they need funding? Yeah, they need funding, and there's uh, areas of responsibility that have some, that overlap a little bit, right? So there's going to be fights, which I mean is why I guess you had to make space force, right? Because otherwise, you're going to have like. Um, the Werner von Braun element of the army <laughs> <laughs> fighting against the, uh, uh, the Jack Parsons element of the air force, you know, <laughs> like, uh, wow. I don't think I've heard the name Jack Parsons in a long time. That's another one of my favorite, like weird military industrial complex stories. You know, they made a TV show about him that no one watched. I no, I like, I went out to Los Alamos earlier, the, like last year, and I grew. I I lived in New Mexico when I was young. I went to high school out there, but um, I had never been up to Los Alamos. And I think part of the other fun of this project is like, since I'm not constrained by like editors at major publications who are all nice people, but they're like pretty conventional squares who have like gotten where they are by not making waves. Um, I'm kind of unleashed. I can get like weird as shit with it, which also mirrors how weird the practitioners of this stuff are. You know, I mean, we started off talking about Nancy Reagan and astrology. Um, whatever can motivate, influence, move a person's soul is used. Yeah, which is what Clancy was perfect at. Jesuit educated Clancy. I mean, he was steeped in how to like, how do you use, uh, you know, influence? We, we talked about this a little bit at the beginning, but I, I wanted to circle back around to it. There is, this is all very, um, Maryland, right? right. Like there's a, like all of the, a lot of this stuff is very steeped in Maryland and Baltimore in the kind of the mythology of that state. Uh, and I had someone right. explain to me, I'm from Texas originally. What part of Texas? North Dallas, outside of Dallas. Uh, and I had someone explained to me recently that like people from Maryland are as proud of being from Maryland as like Texans are. Yeah. It's I, I had a, a girlfriend in the army who's from Maryland. Maryland is love being from Maryland. What is it about Maryland? Like what are, what is this that gets into Clancy's writing? I mean, I think it goes back to how it was formed in colonial period, right? Where it was um, more of a lousy fair, like merchant area. Than like say the religious fundos that were up like in the northeast. I come from some of those people, so like yeah, you know, they're all right in my book, but um, they were crazy. And uh, the like the kind of English aristocracy that's like this part of Virginia, right? And so um, there's kind of a like similar to like how Jersey people are, right? Like they're in the shadow of these other things, but they're like we're better than them. We have like the old bay, you know, uh, which is a good seasoning. I'm not, I'm not dissing old bay. I don't want the Marylanders mad at me. But I mean, I go, I go into Maryland's ability to lie to itself too, because um, in in the without remorse essay, which is very Baltimore focused, uh, 
I never knew this. And I lived in Izmir, Turkey as like a little kid. Uh, my dad rejoined the Air Force in the 80s and I moved there in 89. So I was there for like the first Gulf War. Um, so in 1801, a ship left uh, Baltimore Harbor called the USS Utah, uh, E-U-T-A-W, bound for Smyrna, where it was going to pick up a whole shitload of opium, then take the opium around the Horn of Africa, around India, and to China to run the blockade for the British during the opium wars, which was a popular way for Tory families that lost their land to the revolution to keep some money in their pockets. Uh, many of the Boston Brahmins today made their money in this way, but they like went and slummed it down in Baltimore to do it and came back back to uh, Boston. We never talk about that. We never, we never talk about how the Barbary pirates who were the Ottoman empires kind of like paramilitary wing, you know, um, were, they were attacking those ships. We never talk about what the ships were carrying and why and who it was enriching, right? Just keep that up. Keep that on the download. It doesn't matter. What matters is that the Marines landed at Tripoli and kicked ass, right? Um, and so I think Maryland is kind of like they know how important they've been in like the United States' grand scheme of things, but they also don't get no respect. And Texans, what the Texans do, you know, <laughs> you just demand it. Yeah, we demand it. We're really good at demanding it uh, and complaining about it until we loudly until we get it. Yes. My interpreters live uh, in Fort Worth now, along with like their whole village because they all got out. And they, um, I was trying to get them to move to Idaho, where like my folks are from, because uh, the land's very similar. They're Texans. They don't want to move. They're in Texas. Why? They're in the best place in the United States. Why do they want to move? It blew my mind. I loved it. It's fa- I'm so glad you said this because there's this really fascinating, especially like Dallas-Fort Worth, um, is way more multicultural than I think would – I think it would shock people. I'm, I'm just going to keep plugging the hunt for Tom Clancy for this because you can go on there and read an essay that was killed by The Economist where uh, or the Economist like web magazine in 1843. Because um, I made a big effort of saying that how many more halal barns there were in the Dallas-Fort Worth area than, like, say, Brooklyn. How, like, the Afghans I met, they didn't want to live in Virginia or California or New York. They want to live in Texas. Um, and Texas being, or like, Fort Worth being the Medina of America because in the 50s, Elijah, uh, one of the Nation of Islam leaders decided they needed to do a reverse migration from Chicago area down and like colonize parts of Texas. It's that area specifically is very, very flat. The land stretches forever in either in all directions. And it's very easy to set up your own enclave far away from everyone else. So no one bothers anyone. Right. There's. My my interpreters are trying to get um they wanna they called me saying like, hey, we need help finding a parcel of land where we can build 222 houses and a mosque. And so what I'm desperately trying to do right now is get in touch with George W. Bush 
because I would love for George W. Bush to donate a subdivision for Tajik Afghan refugees who largely worked for the Army or the CIA. Doesn't that seem appropriate? It does, just off of I-75 somewhere. You know, anyway, yeah. really. Uh, just like near the Oklahoma border. <laughs> somewhere like... No, no. I was down in Wichita Falls for another story. Mm-hmm. Oh, that place. Uh-uh. I love Texas. I... Wichita Falls scared me. Yeah, that place has a as uh an, a bad energy for there's a couple like spots that have real negative energies and Wichita Falls is definitely one of them. Yeah. Yeah, I I have a a piece coming out in Harper's in January where I talk about a trip down to Wichita Falls. It's also one of those like um we think we're 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 we have the pretense of being a city but we're not quite and we used to really, I, I went to high school um, just outside of a town called Las Vegas, New Mexico. Uh, not Las Vegas, Nevada. Like, it was an international school that caused problems with a couple, couple of kids, um, you know, flying into the wrong place. But Las Vegas, New Mexico, when the railroad was first there, was like the biggest, most prosperous, coolest town in New Mexico. Then the railroad shifted and then the highway shifted. And the Manhattan Project happened, and uh, the I forty corridor became, you know, I forty and I twenty five. The and so Las Vegas kind of it has its past. It has when Teddy Roosevelt used to come there for Rough Riders conventions. It has the Plaza Hotel featured in uh, No Country for Old Men. Um, but it's similar, it, like similar kind of energy to Wichita Falls, where it was once a like place and they don't know how to quite to like cling to that. Um, yeah. It, it's and the Texans. So they're real proud of it. Yeah. So you've got to, so there has to be, there's like different levels of pride and city pride is a big part. Uh, especially like in that area, uh, people real, real proud of the specific city or region that they're from within like the greater Texas thing. I could sit here and talk about this all day. I am many Germans. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That too. Yeah. And I'm, I'm like, I'm part Swiss German. I'm like my mom's side, so I guess I can say that. But like, a lot of Germans. Yeah, I mean, the best part of traveling from Dallas to Austin is stopping halfway through and getting a bunch of kolaches. That that's all like all the German bakeries uh, that are in like West, like all that stuff. So that's the good stuff. That's the Real good stuff. Yeah, no, it, but it's like it's also something where you don't you don't necessarily think that's specific. Like, who cared? Like, happy, like, you know, like a bunch of the people in Virginia were like German back in the day. Um, they're still very German. And then Wichita Falls also has the like Air Force's like fighter pilot training school where. They train foreign pilots there too. So, like, you look at on pins at like a gas station. I mean, you're a Turkish fighter pilot, and your first exposure to America is living in Wichita Falls. God bless Texas. Yeah, I mean, I guess your other option is like Shepherd, right? Which is still Texas, right? Uh, yeah, I mean, you're gonna you're gonna be there no matter what. Any like, we got to talk. We got to back on Tom Clancy. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I, I I like Texas. Uh, I and I had never really been there before I was an adult. So uh, yeah, like it's a it's an opinion that comes like I've spent most of my time in Texas. 
hanging out with Afghans. That I mean that totally tracks. That totally tracks to me. <laughs> like the the ability to like basically like you said like set up your own kind of enclave on the highway, uh, have your own community. It's like very achievable <laughs> there because there's so much land. The regulations are laxer. Um, so yeah, I mean, I lived the la- one of the last places I lived. I lived in like I lived in an apartment complex uh, that was. Full of like uh, they had some sort of special deal with an Indian telecom company, and they st- and a bunch of Indian Muslims started uh, immigrating to it. And then like I got to learn what Ramadan was, uh, yeah. which was really fascinating. Uh, one of the last places I lived there, uh, I could like the the food that was around me, and it was all it was all like Southeast Asian and like Indian subcontinent communities that had built like these incredible restaurants and these strip malls to service their, like the communities that they had there. Um, it's just a fascinating place. Yeah. Like, it's, it's awesome. And it's also not necessarily like what say somebody who's grown up in Northern Virginia, gone to UVA then gone back to DC to start their career. And maybe like goes out to Telluride or Sedona. You know, be real adventurous, go to Santa Fe. Um, like the it, that doesn't compute necessarily until you go and kind of like see it and experience it. Yeah, there's. I mean, there's drawbacks. You got to have a car. You got to really like being on the highway or a horse or a horse, depending on what part you're in. Yeah, further you go mm-hmm. west, the more horses there are. Well, and I mean, Clancy. Uh, I was trying to bring it back and like talk about Texas with him, but honest to God, he doesn't really feature Texas that much. You're, I had never thought about Clancy's like Maryland, like what state version of nationalism? I like, can call it Maryland nationalism. Maryland nationalism uh, was to the exclusion of Texas because he he mentions people. He has people from I guess no, Judge Moore and Robert Ritter are both from Texas, but we never learned anything else about them. They're just like, and they're both CIA cowboys. They are. They are. You know, you're right. Like, yeah, they're they're mythic figures that come in, right? Whereas, like, Clark is from Indiana, um, which Indiana University is a good farm team for the CIA. So that's uh, Bob Gates went there. So that's a good inside joke. And then um, Jack is Maryland. Uh, Jack's Maryland. He lives in the same. A state that Clancy did, right? Peregrine Cliff, which had an underground shooting range. His wife bought him a Wanda. His first wife bought him a World War II tank. That's beautiful. It's so awesome. Uh, get you a woman that'll buy you a tank. I think. Well, and then he they got a divorce, and he married uh, Colin Powell's second cousin, who was the heir to a PepsiCo fortune. Got to keep the money rolling in. Well, and but the, the other interesting part with Clancy, too, is he's writing in the 80s and 90s, primarily. But he, I mean, and the, and the leads are like white dudes, right? Like John Clark and Jack Ryan are white. But around them, it's a really like multicultural, multi-ethnic, multi-religious um, like gender integrated, like Kathy Ryan is spoken about with like a lot of respect. She's a surgeon. At, uh, so it was weird to me. 
and and um, Clancy's second wife is a black woman. And so none of the like it's it's conservatism like and kind of but widely cast because I mean honestly like the army was super diverse. Um, and the schools I grew up in as a military kid, like I never understood the problem of like monoculture because I never experienced it. Um, and I, I always found that a little like, I don't know, kind of redeeming about him, but also a more cynical read on that is you appeal to more people to invite them into the security state by like showing that there's a place for you, Mormon FBI agent working with Italian American woman secret service agent who's a champion shooter. I would say that's that's part of the military project now, right? That's this is part of the the thing that has uh, Republican lawmakers in such a tizzy is the appeal to different kinds of people that the military needs to keep going, right? Right. Uh, well, and the type of people they're going to need to keep going into the future because, like, I mean, anyone can do what I did uh, as long as you have like legs and arms. Um, you can pretty much do my job. Um, I can't. I can't do like some of the computer jobs. You know, I can't do some of the like flying stuff around jobs. Uh, and those are going to be more and more important. And so, certain taboos have to shift. Marijuana. Uh, you know, like we've seen the military have a a really. Um, I mean, just since I've been around it, uh, I was in, like, I was a child during the Nasca Patel era, you know, and the shift in the military from that to, like, where it is now is a good thing. Um, and it's also, like, kind of a stunning thing when you think about it. Like, that's within within a generation. Yeah, I mean, one of the most popular pieces of military fiction that I think most people find instantly recognizable is about Marines collectively punishing a gay man. Right. Oh, the um, is that few good men? A few good men. Yeah. Yeah. Like that in the that story, I think is like so rooted in that time and place, and is would, would I hope be completely foreign uh, to the modern military? Right. Well, I mean, I don't know. <laughs> Fair. <laughs> Probably not. Fair. Um, yeah, I was in it. Like I described the infantry as like at once both the most homoerotic and the most homophobic environment I've ever been in. So, yeah, I don't know, actually. Um, well, and then, but then you think about who wrote, who wrote A Few Good Men and what else has he written? <laughs> like, oh, it's Charlie Wilson's war. Huh. So the network, like, some interesting stuff. Working through some things, uh, working through some thoughts and feelings about both his father and American empire, for sure. And I mean, I always thought it would be fun to do kind of a, a Hunt for Tom Clancy spin-off that was focused on like the West Wing and how the West Wing created a whole like culture of like DC dorks that wanted to be Josh Lyman. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah. I think that's a good it's. So well, I think one of the central uh, like conflicts in my brain in my uh, in my adult life is the push and pull between realizing that like art is this transcendent force that changes the world. Uh, but also making sure that that thought doesn't lead to then 
an idea that art should be controlled, we should be censorious, and that it's dangerous in a way that we need to suppress it. Does that make sense? It's like, I, I understand that things like Tom Clancy are influential and effective that people want to be Josh Lyman and that they moved to DC, maybe not, maybe not specifically because they watched too much West wing, but that had an influence. Right. But I also don't want to end up being Tipper Gore, uh, telling people that they can't listen to Prince albums because I'm afraid of what that art might do to them. And then I'm, I'm in a more like third camp, I think, which is where the way that you deal with art that is not conducive to your program, right? Like if I'm, if I'm some like mystical government figure, right? Uh, and you just promote the shit out of like other art that is conducive to your program. Well, that's the healthier way, I think. Well, but I think that's also like, I'm thinking of, of wartime like writer equivalents uh, or like writer equivalents of Tom Clancy around that time. And there was a, a book called Buffalo Soldiers, which had a movie based on it with uh, King Phoenix. In um, the movie, the movie tanks because it comes out like it was. The movie doesn't get released because it was right after nine eleven. Yes, because it's this scathing indictment of uh, like nineties military culture in Germany, where they they had like the joyride with the tank on heroin. On heroin. On heroin. Yeah. Uh, um, the, the protagonist is a crooked like supply sergeant. It's just stealing as much as he can while also like having an affair with the sergeant major's daughter who has one arm. Um, like it's so good, but it's also, you read that. And honestly, I think that's more the truism of the military that I saw uh, versus like Clancy gets technical details, very accurate and gets like how people want themselves to be perceived and how they think of themselves, but not necessarily how they are. Correct. Right. Um, it's like, I don't know. People forget that during Vietnam, the Sergeant major of the army, the highest ranking dude in the army, um, or highest ranking enlisted dude in the army was running a like criminal enterprise predicated on, uh, like enlisted clubs in Vietnam and elsewhere getting kickbacks to the tune of about $600 million a year that they were able to figure out, but they weren't necessarily able to figure the whole thing out because the Sergeant Major's subordinate in the criminal enterprise was the two-star provost marshal of the army. So the chief law enforcement of the army of the officer officer of the army was the deputy to somebody who should have outranked in the criminal infrastructure. And if you think that stuff stopped, like, come on. It did not. No, not at all. <laughs> the incent- I mean, if the incentives didn't go away, then it didn't stop. Different people are doing different things that look very similar. And I think, like, I, and which I think like leads back into your, your original question, which is why, why, why is it hard for this type of thing to take seed right now? And, you know, the one remnant that you mentioned that was like, still kind of, oh, those guys are kind of cool. Operative culture, right? But we're also starting to, like, realize that maybe some of those green beanies down in, like, Columbia were, like, 
shipping cocaine, cocaine back. Maybe some of those, like... Not only that, but like, hey, how did that... Why is that beheaded body found on the beach? You, like, it's just, yeah, yeah. Well, and my... What, I, what I've understood with that was... Um, so there's a close relationship between uh, the outlaw, outlaw motorcycle gangs in the United States who were formed after World War II, largely with, like, returning vets. And the government. Um, and so uh, I have been told that part of the reason for the spades of murders on Brad was once the fall of Kabul uh, happens, you've got a pipeline that's been shut down, right? Like the way you were getting product back from Afghanistan to America is now gone, right? But the drug business is a credit-based business, right? It's not necessarily a cash-based business. So if you have had an outlaw motorcycle game with you a $100,000 advance to purchase heroin, you don't deliver that? That's really bad. And you might end up dead. And then you expand that. That makes total sense. Yeah. Uh, I never thought about that angle. Yeah. It's fucked up. I mean, it's a, um, you, you would or wouldn't be surprised at the number of, uh, the other thing that um, is interesting is, you know, some of those, uh, some of those clubs flew their colors outside of black sites in Afghanistan because the guards are the like, what do they call those dorks? The like CIA's like PSD dudes. I don't know. I can. I, I'm just thinking about that picture. Uh, the picture of the, the the like the guys with the the armor on and the, and the blue jeans and the button up and the glasses like your glass. You know, I can't remember what they call them, but I know what you're talking about. But they, no, they weren't Scorpion. I forget what the fuck they're called. But like the dudes that rolled around in Afghanistan, like drove the like Hiluxes with the uh, case officers were in. A lot of them were like patched in motorcycle gang dudes. Who there's there's civilian job was this, and weirdly enough, that doesn't affect your security clearance. Who knew? You know, there's jobs to get filled. Uh, you know. Yeah, have people working. Um, no, and I mean, I can see again from like that that uh, that graybeard government graybeard eye. You got people that are going to be criminals. It's like you might as well have control of them. So I understand that aspect of it, but it's also like it's not what we're told. Well, I mean, you can't. That's not a only a certain kind of person wants to hear that story. But it's the story. Yeah, it's a good one too. Uh, I guess it, it flies in the face of a lot of things we tell ourselves. It does, and we like some of us like simple stories, right? And, and anything that gets complicated or nuanced, sometimes we turn off. You know, um, let me ask you a couple more questions here, and then let's get out of here. But I think I'm like you're gonna have to come back on the show. There's too much to talk about. This is fun. Yeah, I've enjoyed it. Uh, what's the canon? What is the Clancy canon? Okay, the Clancy canon, I think, is the uh, 
the 13 Jack Ryan novels plus Red Storm Rising. Um, if you want to read, like, I think Op Center is worth reading. And my, my, like, my white whale Op Center book is Op Center Three Games of State because it was co-written with Dr. Steve Bajenek, who I talk about in like one of the essays, but I got to get deeper into it because like this guy both did kind of everything. He, he He's a Flynn-like character, honestly. Um, like, where you're not quite sure when the crazy started. Um, and so those are the, those are the canon books. Um, I would start off reading them in chronological order if you want. Um, so that's Patriot Games first, then Hunter October, uh, uh, Cardinal of the Kremlin, Clear, Clear and Present Danger, et cetera. You can stop after they start getting ghostwritten. You can honestly like stop at Teeth of the Tiger. Uh, it, it's the one that's partially set in Charlottesville. Not very good. Um, and he pissed up, but, but he has weird. I, I also like to read Clancy novels for the like weird, like nuggets that he has in there. So in the Teeth of the Tiger one, he talks about video game companies and how. It's hard for the National Security Agency to like recruit the smartest person at, at Stanford computer science, right? Because like they want money. But it's easy for them to get that person a job in a video game company, then non-disclosure agreements, and uh hey, you want like a million dollars to put this back door into this one thing? Yeah, okay. And so that's that's more of the model, and that's one of the things he talks about in he also talks about apparently, and I haven't found it yet, but J. Edgar Hoover's uh, gray mail files are secluded in a mansion in Charlottesville. So I got to find it. See what's in there. And I would also recommend for anyone that's getting into Clancy or wanting to reread Clancy to uh, pull up the Substack. Please do. And, re- yeah, and, and read along as you go through the novels. Where, where, What's the URL? Uh, the URL is the hunt for Tom Clancy.substack.com. Perfect. Uh, we're going to have you back on to talk about more. Things. I would love that. I, this, this has been I like an hour and 20 minutes. It's kind of flown by. Yeah, It's been great. Uh, yeah. All right. Thank you so much. Uh, you're going to come back for part two. I'm sure. Sounds great. That is all for this week, Angry Planet listeners. As always, Angry Planet is me, Jason Fields, and Kevin O'Dell. Thank you also very much for tuning in. We love you. Uh, I think this was a pretty good episode for our Thanksgiving week. Uh, I know the audio is not as good as we want it, but we're going to fix that uh, for the next time Matt comes on. Uh, Really fascinating stuff that he's writing about Tom Clancy over at The Hunt for Tom Clancy on Substack. You must read it. And hey, did you know that we also have a Substack? Angryplanet.substack.com or angryplanetpod.com where you for a mere $9 a month can get early access to our episodes and uh, some other stuff that we've got cooking. It's going to be coming out pretty soon. It really helps support the show. It keeps us going. Thank you all so much for everything you do. We've had a lot of great feedback uh, and some angry feedback 
over the past few weeks. Uh, we'd like to hear all of it. And I think we're going to be sharing some of it on the show soon. Uh, some of it has changed the way we're going to go about producing the show, but we'll get into that a little bit later. Again, thank you all so much. We will be back next week with another conversation about conflict on an angry planet. Stay safe until then. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com.